You're listening to the podcast of East River Park Christian Church. If you'd like to find out more information about the church or donate to this ministry, please visit us at eastriverpark.church. We pray that this is an encouragement to you as you grow in Christ through the local church. Y'all good? Y'all quiet. Y'all are making me nervous. Um, The first time I was asked to officiate a wedding, uh, just completely clueless. And I I had no idea what to do or what to say. And so, sure, I I, I have been uh, to plenty of weddings before, but to actually, like, lead a service, man, it just... It filled me with a lot of anxiety. Thankfully, I've been uh, mentored well over the past several decades of ministry. I've always had uh, faithful and godly uh, men in my life that have poured into me. And one of those men, he, he gave me a wedding cheat sheet, this template to build every wedding service on. So here's what to say and when to say it. Here's what scripture to read. Here's how to do the message. Here's how to do the exchange of, of rings. Here's how you lead a couple through the vows. So, of course, like I, I, I've tweaked that document over the years, but it's the same document I use for, for every wedding. So there's been this, this growing trend that I've seen among younger couples. So I'll sit down with them uh, to plan the wedding, and they will tell me... Um, we would like to share our own vows. Now, I don't know how or why that started. Um, the thought of me doing that at my own wedding like, would have terrified me. Like, Just give me the traditional vows and I'll repeat after the preacher. But truth be told, it really is. It's always more meaningful and special when they write their own vows. And here's what happens. Now, nine times out of, nine times out of ten, not always, but usually... So the groom will go first, and he shares a brief paragraph of vows to his bride, and they're meaningful, Um, but I mean, they're brief. Then it's the bride's turn, and she very eloquently delivers this this speech for the ages, professing her love for her soon-to-be husband in the most perfect of words. I did a wedding a few weeks ago. Um, it was standing right in here and stood over there while the bride gave the vows. And even I was getting a little emotional. And I, I know it's a stereotype, but a lot of guys are just not great with words of affirmation. Like they deeply love their wife. They would die for their bride. But to actually like put those words into speech, well, that just, that just feels impossible. So for many of us, it's difficult to convey how much we... We love someone with our own words, and yet it's, it's imperative and important that we do. Simply, if you love someone in your life right now, which you should, I mean, you should tell them with your words. Words matter, even if you're not great at getting them out. So as we arrive this morning in Psalm 45, we're given in some way a, a a cheat sheet to a wedding. This is a love song 
This is a wedding song, and as we study this morning, we will see these words, what words we might convey about our love for the Lord. Simply, like, if you love the Lord this morning, I mean, which you should, you should, I mean, you should tell him. To the praise of his glory, we should confess our love for God. So, so let, me, let me put some words around that affection. We'll be in Psalm 45 today. We'll tackle all of that psalm. If you have a digital Bible, I'll read out of the ESV. If you have a bulletin, um, I think the scripture is its own separate bullet or separate handout this morning in your bulletin. But before we read the psalm, let's pray together. Father, we, we humbly come before you. And we confess that our affection is bent to, to so many things in this life. So many people, to so many possessions, to so many dreams, to so many sports, to, to so many job ambitions. God, we love so many things. God, teach us how to love you. Teach us, teach us what it means to convey with words our affection and adoration for you. So God, expose our hearts as we read Psalm 45 this morning. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Psalm 45, we'll take it from the top. To the choir master, according to the lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. Verse one. My heart overflows with a, a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness. You've hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions, your robes and all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, your from ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad daughters of kings and are among you, your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in the gold of Ophir. So hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people. In your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will, will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of people, and all glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold, in many colored robes. She is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. So with joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your father shall be your sons, 
and you will make them princes in all the earth, and I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So like mentioned last week, we, or I guess two weeks ago, we have a, a title or a superscription to this chapter that reveals the purpose and the author of this psalm. So before we verse, get to verse 1, we see, like last week, um, or again, two weeks ago, this is a mascale, meaning it's a genre of the psalms that seeks to provide wisdom. So likewise, it's a psalm from the sons of Korah, these like Levitical musicians that are writing on behalf of God's people. And so the obvious intended purpose of this psalm is that it's a love song. It's meant to be played at a, at a wedding or for a royal couple, which means it serves three primary functions for us today as we study. So it, it reveals the love between a royal groom and the bride. It reveals the royal relationship between God and the line of King David. And then it reveals the royal relationship between King Jesus and his bride, the church. Which means this royal psalm, is, it, it's multi-layered. So for the sake of clarity and application today, I want to focus all of our attention specifically on love. I mean, after all, it's a love psalm. After all, it does reveal the reasons that we love the Lord. So I want to answer this simple question in your notes, which is a blank because I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to pull myself together for this Sunday. So it's just blank. If you like taking notes, there's extra space for notes for you this morning. So it's a simple question for us to answer from Psalm 45. What is there to love? I guess specifically, what is there to love about the Lord? And maybe you have not given that much thought. Maybe you've, you've never really clarified what that means in your life. I know many of us have heard the words from Jesus in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 22, verse 36. They say, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, but what's there to love about the Lord? I need, some, I need some words to form around that. So let me give you four I love statements. What is there to love? I'm going to give you four simple I love statements from Psalm 45. Number one, I love the Lord's grace. I love his grace. So verse 1, it kicks off this song with a, with a few more specifics about the person that's writing this song. The heart overflows with a pleasing theme. The song is first to the king. The tongue is like a pen of a ready scribe, or we might say a golden tongue, simply like this writer. And verse 1 is prepared and ready to express this love. It's an, it's an overflow. I guess which should make us stop and think for a moment. Is our own heart like that? Are we filled with a love for the Lord deep in our bellies that we can't wait to express? If I can press so gently, um, the reason 
many of us are not ready for worship on Sunday mornings is because we've not been preparing our heart during the week. Sunday worship is an opportunity to exhale praise to the Lord in a corporate setting because that exaltation has been building with our time with God during the week. I mean, do y'all really need LED lights and a fog machine to get yourself in the mood for worship? Worship is an overflow of an affection for Christ, not some drummed up feeling when it's time to sing. Oh no, this, this scribe, he's ready to deliver it. And listen to the words he shares in verse 2. You, you are the most handsome, or the fairest of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. It's grace, it's undeserved favor and a blessing from the king. You know how mind-boggling that is of a way to describe the king? I mean, many of us look at our leaders today and think like, whew, there's a lot of foolishness poured upon their lips, but grace? That, that doesn't come to mind. How, how about an earthly king? Like kings known to be tyrants, kings known to take what is not their own. Tyrants don't show grace. It's literally what Samuel was warning us back in 1 Samuel 8. Y'all thought you could get away from 1 Samuel. Here we are again. So 1 Samuel 8, verse 11. The warning from Samuel, he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take your flocks and you shall be his slaves. The king was a man that took what was not his own. The king was a man that showed no mercy. The king was a man that was unfair and difficult for the people to bear. And so the point of Psalm 45 is to reveal that the royal line of David is going to be categorically different than the royal line of Saul. King Jesus from the line of David, spoke words of grace. In Luke 4, if you might remember, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He unrolls a scroll from the prophet Isaiah, and he says this in Luke 4. This account, starting in verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And you know what the people said later in verse 22? They said, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. A song that the royal groom is a man that speaks grace. And yet Christ as king, the God-man, not only spoke grace, he also has the power to deliver it. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. We deserve judgment before the holy God. God poured out his wrath on his son on the cross on our behalf. We receive the righteousness of Christ. Christ died for us, grace. Christ rose for us, grace. Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, grace. Christ will bring us all the way home, it's grace. So the affection that we have for the king must be rooted in the gospel. You know what I love? Well, I love the overwhelming grace of King Jesus that turned my life inside out. That takes addicts and makes them sons and daughters. And he takes angry men and women and softens their heart for ministry. And he takes the quiet and causes them to shout for joy. And he takes the lonely and surrounds them with brothers and sisters. And he takes the fatherless and gives them a dad that won't ever leave or disappoint. It's grace upon grace. That's why I love the Lord. I mean, what is there to love? Marvelous grace. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. It's grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. It's grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty solid start to a love song. And there's more. What is there to love? Let me give you point two. I love the Lord's justice. Uh, I think most terrible habits in my life begin somewhere um, on social media. And so for the past month, I've like constantly been checking the police scanner pages on Facebook. And um, if you've never done that before, let me reassure you, um, there's not a lot of like super positive things happening um, on those pages in Carter County. It's just one thing after another, one drama after another. And there's been one word that comes to mind uh, as I, I scroll through these things and just looking at our culture the past several months, it's this word lawlessness. Like our country, it just feels lawless. A complete lack of respect for each other and the laws of our community. And like, we should not be surprised by any of it. That the more people turn away from God and the more they make themselves little gods of their own universe that the godlessness is the precursor to lawlessness that countries and communities are dying by people doing what is ever, whatever is right in their own eyes and yet a love song a song about a king that will not stand for that kind of injustice starting in verse 3 Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. 
And your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. He is not a king to be toyed with. Lawlessness will not have the last word. When, when it feels like the wicked are prospering and you don't, that honestly feels super unfair. I get it. When it feels like the wicked get to, to buy their way out of real justice, at the end of the day, they won't forever. I love the king because he will silence the enemy and the great accuser. I love the king because justice will reign in due time. The promise of Revelation 19, verse 13. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he's called is the word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Iron, He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God, of, of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm not trying to stir up hate in our hearts for those far from Christ. Let us love our enemy, even if it's painful. But as the scribe of verse 6 explains the scepter of his kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Like we can't love the king and then ignore his righteous decree. We live and love the word of truth. Y'all, we love the Bible. Christianity is, is not just some emotional experience with Jesus, it's, it's a submission to Christ as Lord, a submission of your life to uprightness, meaning, I guess simply, you, you don't get to go around telling people you love Jesus and then do whatever you want with your life. And that, that, that doesn't just make you a hypocrite, it actually confirms that you're a son or, or daughter of disobedience. Love and righteousness are married to each other. And as Christians, we're not trying to take those two realities to divorce court. The, the truth, they're truths that go together forever. It's love and righteousness, his throne forever and ever. I love his grace. I, I love his justice. You know what I love? Three. I love, I love the Lord's beauty. I love his beauty. I spent my entire childhood loving the game of baseball. Uh, my dream was to play for the Cincinnati Reds, and if you're thinking, man, how many weeks is he going to talk about the Reds? Um, it might, I mean, it might be a lot, guys. Um, so regardless, like, the Reds have been pretty terrible most of my life. I was watching the game about two weeks ago, and uh, it was a sold-out crowd, at the Great American Ballpark. I've I, I never seen anything like it, and I'm watching uh, my team on my phone, and they're actually winning the game, and the entire stadium is packed and loud and cheering, and it's, it's embarrassing, but I, I literally and quietly said out loud, it's beautiful, <laughs> which is crazy, right? Like, it's just a game. I know there, there are sports fanatics out there that say it's more than a game. 
Um, I get it, but y'all, it's still a game. And yet I was just overwhelmed in the moment. So really, how, I mean, how are we not overwhelmed with the beauty of the Lord? All that he is? His character, his power, his authority, his control, all that he's given you, all that he's created, all that he's promised you and your family? Honestly, if you don't love the beauty of King Jesus, I don't think you've been looking at the king long enough. But why? I mean, why do we love his beauty? The simple answer, and I think is revealed in Psalm 45 and throughout the scriptures, because Christ is better than anything else you've got. There is no sport or job or house or possession or gold that can match the beauty of our God. Nothing can compare. The words of Paul in Philippians 3, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So the psalmist uh, paints a picture of this royal wedding in verses 7 through 17. It's like watching um, one of those wedding recap videos. So the video, it pans back and forth between the bridal party as they get ready for this service. The first scene is this king's preparation at the end of verse 7 of our text. This, this profound and complex reality of our faith, God anointing God. The Lord anointed with oil of gladness beyond compare, myrrh and aloes and cassia poured on the robes as fragrant, stringed instruments ringing out among the ivory palaces, daughters of the king, ladies of honor and attendance. His beauty is unmatched. There's no one like him. Do you believe it? Are you still looking high and low for something else? Our love was designed for something anointed. And we're out here searching for unanointed treasure when, when Christ has been offered to us. Don't you see the beauty of our king? He's, he's better than anything else we could ever find. The king has been anointed and prepared for the wedding. Quit searching for something better when you've been offered everything. So I love his grace. I love his justice. I love his beauty. And one more for today. I love the Lord's holiness. So... The wedding video, it pans from the king's preparation to the bride in verse 12. 
The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts of the richest of the people. William Van German, he described it like this, the reward for identification with God's people and submission to the new way of life is exaltation among the nations. The people of Tyre, the great trading center of Phoenicia, are personified as the daughter of Tyre. And they, as well as other nations, will bring tribute to Jerusalem, meaning the bride-to-be, she ain't a local. And like us, she's, she's come from afar to meet her king. The nations are being drawn to the groom. Don't you see this profound imagery here? The church, the bride and her party are being ushered into the wedding ceremony, glorious robes interwoven with gold in many colors. The virgin bride and her companions enter the palace with joy and gladness. The bride is marrying into a royal family. Don't you see the profound imagery here? That all that belongs to the king is being given to the church. Where did I get that? Well, Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So for those that have believed, repented, been baptized into Christ, we are a part of his church, his bride. And the love of Christ as king is, is sanctifying us, is cleansing us with the word so that he might present the church to himself in all her splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, that she will be holy, without blemish. Don't you see the profound imagery here? I know me. I know, I know me more than you know me. And I see and sense and feel every wrinkle and spot and blemish in my own heart. And the promise of the word is that King Jesus loves me so much that he will take his holiness and make me completely holy like him. And already, but, but not yet, reality, I'm not fully there yet. I'm still being sanctified. I'm still being refined by fire. But the consummation of the royal wedding is holiness. That because Christ is set apart from all creation, he will likewise set me apart from all creation. To the point, this marriage is an eternal marriage. A love song that will not be broken by the trials of this life. A, a love song that will not end because someone got bored in the relationship. This is a marriage of holiness. So love is grace. Love is justice. Love is beauty. Love is holiness. Many of you uh, may not know, but about two weeks ago, our children spent an entire week in Kentucky visiting family, and it's, it's turned into this yearly tradition, um, or at least we hope it has. And uh, 
So my wife and I and the dog have the house to ourselves, and I know one day I'll, I'll miss the noise. Everyone tells me that, but for the, that week, like, the silence is bliss. So I was driving in town with Chris, uh, one of our elders, and, and I asked him, do you know how much more work I got done without the kids? And he said, oh, really, how much? And I said, nothing. I got, I got nothing done. Um, because I, I think we believe this lie that if life would just slow down, we will magically become more productive. And that's just usually not true. When life slows down, my, at least my procrastination has more leverage. I've got time, I can do it tomorrow. I've got time, no reason to stress. I've got time, I'll worry about it later. Verse 17 of our passage this morning, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations, therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. The call of the royal wedding is that our love for the Lord will echo into eternity, that the nations will praise the Lord forever and ever. We will love the Lord forever. So let me ask you the very serious question at the end, the summary question. Do you love the Lord right now? If you're going to write that down, make it for yourself. Do I love the Lord right now? The bride does not get ready and say, you know, I might love him one day. I might love him when I enjoy some of the rest of my life. I might, I might love him tomorrow. Today's the royal wedding. Do you love the Lord right now? Not some future day, not an eternity right now. It's the haunting words of Charles Spurgeon. He said, the great mischief of the most of men is that they procrastinate. It's not that they resolve to be damned, but that they resolve to be saved tomorrow. It's not that they reject Christ forever, but they reject Christ today, and truly they might as well reject him forever as continue perpetually to reject him now, sinner. Let me put thy now before thee as a man. Thou must soon pass away and be forgotten. Like the flowers that withered in autumn, the insects which flitted through the summer hours, now then is thy time to think about eternity and to prepare thyself to meet thy God. You love the Lord right now? You can either be the bride that meets Christ, the bridegroom. Or you can be the sinner that meets the wrath of God. You can either sing a love song or sing a song of eternal destruction. So, you love the Lord right now? Let's pray together.